thank you for joining us, everyone, uh, for another Tuesday Bible, um, Bible study. Um, kind of want to, before we start into this, kind of like recover, uh, recover, recap everything that we kind of talked about. We start off with the knock at midnight, understanding what does it mean to be church, uh, knocking on the church's doors? Um, how have we responded historically and how should we be responding today with everything that's going on? And then um, followed up with Reverend Damien really challenging us um, to see this other America, um, the issues at hand with that, and then also um, cover the patches of Jericho, um, the and just like everything, how we see someone on the road, how we see someone, how do we culturally develop um, apathy or even just indifference to a certain situation, someone's situation that doesn't look like us. Um, so we kind of covered those type of things through Dr. King's lens perspective, what does nonviolence look like in that. And today we're going to be covering um, the spirit of violence and nonviolence. Esther, Mark, and Reverend Dr. Uh, King Jr. Um, so before we begin, I wanted to share this. Um, I don't know if you could put in the chat if you're familiar with Dr. King's principles. Um, and... So this is one of the nonviolent principles that Dr. King has elaborated in his writings. And this one's focused on nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice or evil, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. That's a tough one to wrestle with. Um, the nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not persons of victimized by evil. So again, the nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not the person acting on the evil, because it's also to understand that they are also victims of evil themselves. Um, if you're familiar with this, you can put it in the chat. If it's new to you, you can also put it in the chat. But what I want to do is kind of use this as a lens to how we look at Esther, understanding the book of Esther, and then also looking at a specific verse um, from the book of Mark, from the gospel of Mark. With that being said, um, wanted to see if anyone, I don't know if we can do this real quick, if anyone could read this, um, I know I'll be talking a lot, so I want to give space if anyone want to read this passage, Esther 4, 1 through 4, um, real quick. I'm going to give space to anyone that wanted to read this. I will. All right, cool. Thank you. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hattach, Hattach one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So before we go into the context summary, I'm gonna summarize the book, give some context to what was happening in that verse. Um, you can put it in the chat, share in the chat. What do we know about Queen Esther in the book of Esther? Um, some of us might know, not remember, it's okay. What do we know about Queen Vashti? And what do we know about Mordecai? You can share in the chat. Uh, if you remember, if you probably read this book yesterday or <laughs> last year, you might not. Uh, you might know some parts of the story, but share in the chat. Um, for UCS students, if you want, you chat amongst yourself. And then if you want to put like a response or so in it, if you remember any of these characters, write about them. But I want to kind of leave these questions up for a little bit.
All right, so I'll move on. So this is the summary of Esther. It's long bullet points. Um, so before Queen Esther became queen, uh, Queen Vashti was before her, and the way things went down, she nonviolently resists King Ahasuerus' public summoning. Uh, queen Vashti was to present herself wearing a crown to show her beauty to officials. And some scholars, theologians, quite a few of them, believe Queen Vashti would have been presented naked in front of others. So there was a cultural thing and also a power dynamic um, in this that a lot of theologian, historical scholars say. And Esther, who is of, who is Jewish, and Hadassah is her Jewish name, and Mordecai's cousin, becomes queen after a controversial selection. If anyone remembers, this is a selection out of virgins. Um, they all had to sleep with the king. So there's a lot of sexual um, assault, power dynamics, and all these things that happen. And so Esther was chosen. Haman is the king's second hand, creates edict to kill all Jews. Mordecai nonviolently protests in the front, um, in front of the king's gate, which is the verse that we read. And then Queen Esther persuades king, persuades king to change the edict. Um, over time, knowing that Queen Esther is also Jewish, Mordecai is Jewish, he protests nonviolently and is trying to persuade Esther to tell the king, hey, can we need this edict changed or get rid of it? The king agrees to change the edict, giving power to Esther to change it. Haman is killed by king officials due to Esther's persuasion after plotting Mordecai's death. After finding Mordecai was going to die by Haman's hands, she persuaded the king and his officials to um, kill Haman. Edict changed, allowing Jews to kill enemies, including in defense. Mordecai was considered most powerful throughout the book in, kings, in the king's house, and then Jews struck down all their enemies. So I kind of want to go quickly back. Oh, I had to let someone in. So we know that, um, so with the summary, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence within the book of Esther. Um, the original king, King Ahasuerus, um, and Haman, his second hand, they agreed to put out an edict to kill the Jews in the provinces and the surrounding areas because they were not um, obeying his laws, his rules. And so they put a, a, um, an, edict out, an edict out to kill all Jews. Um, before it was implemented and acted on, Mordecai protested. Once he found out this was happening, he protested. And he said he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. So it's a public demonstration, um, protest, nonviolent, in front of the king's um, palace. And... He went as far as the king's gate, but no one, uh, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it, he played on, he was wearing sackcloth. So he knew the purpose of it. He knew that he wouldn't enter with it. So it was all nonviolent within this moment. He was nonviolently protesting, resisting the edict. And then once that happens, um, Esther persuades the king. King agrees, they change it, but here's the interesting part is that uh, once Queen Esther um, and Mordecai assume power positions, um, they go and flip it and say, hey, we want to also create an edict in the same name, but towards everyone that wanted to kill us. There's a lot of violence, <laughs> um, a lot of edicts, so it's a cycle that was happening. So for, for the chat, um, and for us in the Bible, say reflective questions. If we apply Reverend Dr. King Jr.'s principle of nonviolence to the book of Esther, what can we learn? Is there a spirit of nonviolence and or violence? Who were the victims of these edicts? Was there truly peace and justice at the end of Esther? And you can share in the chat. Um, I'll leave it up for a little bit. But if we apply the principle that we read in the beginning, that nonviolence um, attacks this system, of evil and hate, not the people. And I'll kind of go back to that real quick. You guys have nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice or evil, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not, a, not evil people. The nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil. 
not persons victimized by evil. And then we'll go back to this question. So you can put it in the chat, share in the chat. If we apply this principle to the book of Esther, what can we learn? Is there a spirit of nonviolence and or violence? Who were the victims of these edicts? Was there truly peace and justice at the end of Esther? So someone said there may have been justice, but there certainly was violence. Esther was an eye for an eye kind of girl, definitely not kinging on the surface. So yeah, share. So I wanted to kind of add this also um, from Dr. King's writings, the current race relations was an article he wrote in the 60s. And I wanted to also apply this and see how we can look at through these quotes and apply it to the book of Esther. And it says, the tension in this city is not between white people and Negro people. The tension is at bottom between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. The nonviolent resistor must often voice his protest through non-cooperation or boycotts, but he realizes that non-cooperation and boycotts are not ends within themselves. They are means to awaken a sense of moral shame within the opponent. The end is redemption and reconciliation. And then the last quote is, the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community, while the aftermath of violence is tragic bitterness. So the reason why I share these quotes is because in the book of Esther, we see this tension. We see this edict being put out. Uh, we know who the target people are. And then when the power structure changes, when the power position changed, it was reversed. It was the same edict, but now it's a different target. And But in before all this takes place, Mordecai does a nonviolent. He was a nonviolent resistor. So the question is, internally, was he violent? Was Esther violent internally also? Um, and did that give way to the, the edict that they proposed, which struck down all their enemies? So we do have this nonviolent resistor, Mordecai, at one point. Once he assumes the power, the position of power, he kind of keeps that same edict but changes the target. And I also want to highlight that first quote, the tension in the city is not between white people and Negro people. The tension is that bound between justice and injustice. So the edict itself was injustice. It was unjust. And between the forces of light and darkness. But then there's a moment where it's like, well, now we just see the people doing it. So let's take it out on the people in the book of Esther. So I wanted to highlight, use these quotes to also add some lens to the book of Esther. Um, so if you ever go back and read it, you know, maybe this will stick through your head and see what, okay, these are issues <laughs> that I'm reading. So if anyone else, we can have someone else um, read these verses, Mark 12, 38 through 44, real quick. If anyone wants to read. I'll read. It's H. Lee Tony from Ebenezer in Miami. All right, cool. Thank you. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. The widow's offering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Thank you. Um, before I move on <laughs> from this one um, with questions and how we can look at it through Dr. King's perspective, when you read this, or if you ever heard a sermon on this, what is kind of like the general sermon, like the message behind that sermon that you usually would hear in a church setting, um, a youth night setting, 
what is some of the messages you can put in the chat? What are some messages that you're used to hearing when you read this verse or a sermons on it? You could place in the chat. I'll leave it up here for a little bit. Give what you can. Tithing, stewardship, giving generously. Yeah, that's a common one I usually hear is the stewardship, tithing, and sermons. We'll leave it up here for like a second or so. If anyone else has anything that most people don't trust God enough to give all they have or to a point or to a point of discomfort. So I want to share some context in Mark. Um, so the previous verses um, before we get to the one that we read, Mark 12, 28 through 31. Um, so the scribes question about which commandment is first of all. So right before we get to all this, um, to our scripture, this is happening. Jesus replies, the most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So these are the words of Jesus right before the verses that we get to that we're on in Mark. So kind of giving you context of what was being said. So Jesus, even with the verses before this, he's really critiquing and questioning the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes who are holding on to the Torah. Um, and for us, it's the Old Testament. A lot of the laws that's being that they're so used to reciting, practicing. And so he's critiquing what's happening in his time and how they're um, interpreting um, the, the Torah and the Old Scriptures. And so he's critiquing them, challenging them to see it in a different way in his time. So to give some background, widows were considered vulnerable economically and socially, easily preyed upon by those in power. And this verse, um, when it's talking about the widows, it echoes Isaiah 10, 1 through 2, and I'll read this one. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. That's also including children on the fatherless. Um, so Isaiah 10, uh, one through two, we see this being spoken about the unjust laws and that how they're impacting widows and they're considered prey. So in an, another interpretation um, that you can look at this scripture is Jesus is actually being critical of the wealthy and Roman empire collaborators, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious figures. And Jesus is nonviolently condemning the manipulation of the poor, giving all they must to support the temple, condemns the system, not the actors. So he's he's going in question, he's highlighting this woman gave everything she had, but was it by choice? And if it wasn't by choice, then there's a system in place that's causing her to give everything she has. So there's a so there's a um system in place with the Roman Empire collaborators, the Sadducees, scribes, religious figures that is violent towards those who are poor, the widows, as they're easily preyed upon. They'll be paying more. Um, they'll be pushed to give more. Um, so we, so this wanted to set the framework as we look through Dr. King's lens and what it means to be violent, nonviolent, and also the interaction between Jesus and the scribes and what was happening before. So reflective questions on this, on this. Has the church ever contributed to poverty, whether socially, personally, or nationally, internationally? Has the church ever abused its powers? So share, uh, share in the chat your thoughts on, oh, oh we don't want to go back. We don't go that one. But I want to take some time right now to give some reflective questions on an interpretation that maybe Jesus was being critical in critiquing the system that was causing this lady to give all she had while she was poor? And has the church ever contributed to poverty from your knowledge or anything like that? I wanna give space for you guys to share your thoughts.
What if nonviolence is a way to give out from poverty? Yeah. Yeah, you could enter in the chat, share your thoughts. Because I know that interpretation um, is not really shared in sermons. Um, some people might read some theological book and might run into it. Um, I want to give space to this right here. Socially, politically, black Native Americans, land holdings, et cetera. Yeah? And some of these vestiges that continue to the present day. The popular prosperity gospel comes to mind, definitely abuse of power. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I want us to sit with this before we move on. There's a video um, I wanna share with y'all, just really three videos. Um, kind of reconnecting to Dr. King's principle of nonviolence. Oh yes, the church. It's quick to ask funds for funds for our congregants, but many times aren't there when they need the church for something. They wanted to have the family, a family of a lifelong member to pay the church to have her funeral there. Mm -hmm. And those are expensive. I actually just came from a funeral this weekend. So yeah, so I'm gonna share a video. Um, we'll do a quick watch, it's a quick one, um, and then share, uh, and we'll have some questions, follow questions, um, reflecting the video, if, just to see if you guys are familiar with what's being shared. Urban Southern whites with Puerto Ricans and blacks. Housing issues, police brutality, that's what we could all agree on, was for those neighborhoods to come together. That was the beauty of it. The world was on fire and we were part of that flame. We're gonna fight racism, not racism, but we're gonna fight the solidarity. It's a rainbow coalition, but didn't matter what color you were, the war doesn't win pride. The first rainbow coalition. All right, so quick questions. <laughs> what did you hear in the video? No short. What did you see in the video? And do we know anything about the Rainbow Coalition? Well, keep on these questions. You can share in the chat if you're familiar with it, um, any of the figures in the video. Can we replay it? Yeah, we can replay it. Urban Southern whites with Puerto Ricans and blacks. Housing issues, police brutality, that's what we could all agree on, was for those neighborhoods to come together. That was the beauty of it. The world was on fire and we were part of that flame. We're gonna fight racism, not racism, but we're gonna fight the solidarity. It's a rainbow coalition, but didn't matter what color you were, war doesn't win pride. The first. Jesse Jackson did play a part in it, yes. Um, I don't know if other names like Fred Hampton comes to mind. Yeah, let all these people in. Um, so what did you hear in the video? What did you see in the video? I know it's short and quick. Do we know anything about the Rainbow Coalition? Anyone from UCF? No. Anything from the Rainbow Coalition ever heard of it? Racial diversity. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying no here. Okay. Ever heard of Fred Hampton? <laughs> and Operation Push, yes, that was a big one too. We know a little bit about Fred Hampton. Okay. So I'll move on real quick. So before I get into this quote here, the Rainbow Coalition actually consisted of three groups um, 
They were called the Young Patriots. Um, that was a white, Southern white group that came from the Appalachian area, moved to Chicago, um, very poor in the ghetto, and they had racism ties. Um, a lot of members in the KKK. Fred Hampton, leader of the Black Panther chapter in Chicago. That was big in, um, with founding, find, founding the uh, Rainbow Coalition. And then you had the Young Lords, which was a Puerto Rican group in Chicago, all of them living in low income, um, substandard housing, and had horrible healthcare access and all these things. So this quote here that I have on the screen is by High Thurman. He's a founding member of the Young Patriots. And he actually shared that during his time through the Rainbow Coalition, he said racism is, was a demon that had to be driven out and slain if we were going to have unity with other groups and to believe that all people have a right to self-determination and freedom. We had to change to make life tolerable and for life to have some sort of meaning. Now I want to kind of like bring back that um, in the video, they said they were focused on police brutality, housing um, and other issues like that. And kind of echoing what we, um, the quote from in the beginning, the nonviolent principle that nonviolence seeks to defeat evil and hate, not the people. And how um, this right here was post um, Dr. King assassination. And so there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of people didn't know what to do and all stuff like that and how to move forward. Black Panthers were a big party at the time. And then you had the Young Lords and Young Patriots coming up but they realized they had to put their differences aside to actually tackle what were the real issues. And so I wanna kind of share, bring up um, Dr. King and his writing, The Ethical Demands for Integration. And I want kind of like go back, think about that quote that I just read um, as I read through these quotes. He said, desegregation will break down the legal barriers and bring men together physically but something must touch the hearts and souls of men so that they will come together spiritually because it is natural and right. Those dark and demonic responses will be removed only as men are possessed by the invisible inner law, which etches on their hearts the conviction that all men are brothers and that love is mankind's most potent weapon for personal and social transformation. True integration will be achieved by true neighbors who are willingly and obedient to unforeseeable obligations. I kind of want to give some background to that first quote, desegregation um, and the ethical demands of integ for integration. Martin Luther King was actually writing a, a paper, um, a defense argument uh, for those who were bashing um, integration. And so they were using the word desegregation. And what he was basically saying, like, well, desegregation is just the legal form of it. Like you can desegregate a school and make it law, but that does that really make it genuine? That's what he was questioning. And so he was saying, well, integration is really true, genuine um, integration is to touch the hearts and the souls of men. So they come together spiritually. Now, the reason why I put this at the behind the video is because that was also happening with the Rainbow Coalition. You have these people whose differences, white, had racism, had to put the racism to the side. The Young Lords, um, Puerto Ricans, language barriers, all of them, Black Panthers, were all living in substandard ghetto housing in Chicago um, and New York. And they all were all just saying, hey, we have real issues, education, housing. We need to come together, put those differences to the side, and really tackle the real issues. So I want to play a video. Ooh, this one automatically plays. Um, this one is specifically focusing on the Young Lords in New York, the Puerto Rican group in New York. Um, and I want you now, you might have to turn up your volumes, but um, I want you to focus on what is being said by one of the Young Lord members um, in this small clip of a video. Since we've been here and would not allow us to speak, 
that reverend is an enemy. And he's not a Christian. He may be a reverend, but he's not a Christian. Because he does not serve the poor people, and he does not help the poor people in this community. So he's basically doing a press conference in front of the church. Um, interesting thing, they occupy United Methodist churches, one in Chicago and one in New York. Um, and they also occupied a seminary, Presbyterian seminary in Chicago, and they also occupied a hospital um, in New York. But Young Lords Puerto Rican Civil Rights Group, host Reverend Dr. King assassination. Um, so if you're able to hear it, I know it had like low volume. If you're able to hear something, what he was saying, um, what did you hear the, the Young Lord member say about the church, the pastor? How do you feel about what was said? Um, quick summary was that he was basically saying that the pastor is not a Christian, is not serving the poor. They were asking for space in the church to have a free breakfast program to support the families, the parents to go to work while they take care of the kids. Um, so he was basically summarizing on that and said, and basically said the um, pastor is not a real Christian because he did not care about the poor. Um, so that's kind of like summary of what was said. If you did hear it, if you want to share in the chat, how do you feel about what was said? What did you hear the young Lord member say about the church, the pastor? Share in the chat. The same could be said about many pastors today. It was an indictment on the church then and now. But share in the chat if you heard anything else, anything that stuck out to you. Trollers in Houston flood. When you have the capacity to do so. A sound like a plea to serve the community. Mm -hmm. So to give you background, um, so I've read the books, I've <laughs> watched a lot of uh, the videos. Um, they actually attended the service many times to speak to the church leadership. Um, the pastor at the time was a Cuban exile. The young lords did have like berets and military uniforms, um, kind of. Um, mirroring the Black Panther Party with their strict militant strategy, but they actually attended services. They waited till the service to end to talk to leaders. They were denied three times um, by the pastor. The, some of the board members did agree like, yeah, we should have a child daycare in this area. It's a low income Puerto Rican neighborhood. Um, and there's a lot of poverty and a lot of other things that was happening, but they were respectively showing up to service and then at one point, there was a confrontation where the pastor called police and um, some of the members got arrested in the church. So that was kind of some of the background. And that's why they were now doing public press, um, was, was a plea, a cry to say, hey, we need a space in our community. Um, and the church allowed them to meet, to do um, organizational meetings. So they allowed them space for that, but not for the child care. So I want to show another clip of it. <laughs> Same church, but this time um, they're in the church. They actually not only occupied it, but they locked the doors. Um, but they allowed anyone to come and go if they wanted to support the, the movement. And I think they last about seven days in, or so in it, in the church, maybe two weeks. The main thing that we're clear on is that it's such a simple thing to give us space. And now that we've gotten into this church and eaten here and been here for hours, we know what a big place it is. It's incredible, the space in this church. All unused, you know, uh, never open to the community. And it's just incredible to us how such a simple thing like granting us space has resulted in so many heads being busted and so much trouble in East Harlem. And our only understanding of that has to be that religion you know, organized religion has so enslaved our people, has so destroyed their minds, 
the thinking about salvation in the hereafter, they refuse to deal with the conditions that they have now and with the oppression that they have now. The people who come to this church are mostly Puerto Ricans who have already raised themselves to a certain standard. Many of them have left the community. They no longer relate to the community except to drive in on Sundays and go to services. And uh, it's amazing to us that people can talk about you know, uh, Jesus who walked among the poor, the, the poorest, the most oppressed, the prostitutes, the drug addicts of his time, that these people can claim to be Christians, right? They've forgotten that it was Jesus who said that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they forget that it was Jesus who said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And they forget that it was Jesus who said, feed the, feed the hungry and clothe the poor. And this is what we're after. We're after following uh, the tenets and the spirit of Christianity, not the letter Christianity, of those Bibles that have perverted Jesus' real revolutionary uh, and, and social consciousness. That's Juan Gonzalez. So I want to give space again, <laughs> reflect the questions. What did you hear in the video? What did you see in the video? Did a young Lord member challenge the church's contribution to poverty, economic hardships? Yes, no. Why or why not? Um, share in the chat. And by the way, that church still exists today. Um, it's East Spanish, Harlem, United Methodist, if I remember. But the nickname is called the People's Church, which was in Spanish on the banner. So yeah, so what did you hear in the video? What did you see in the video? Did the Young Lord member challenge the church's contribution to poverty, economic hardships? Yes, no, why or why not? Still a cry to serve the community within the space of the church. Mm -hmm. So yeah, share in the chat. What did you see? What did you hear? So I wanted to do some closing reflections, um, starting with the book of Esther that we started with. Um, so we have an edict to kill all Jews, which is violent within itself. Mordecai nonviolently protests the edict. An edict to kill all enemies of Jews is violence. So switching of power, a cycle of violence is created, even if there is a change in power. Oppressed becomes the oppressor. So continuing that cycle out of hate, fear, anger, anxiety. So when the position of power comes up, they also become the oppressed, the oppressor. In the book of Mark, Jesus nonviolently challenges the empire's collaborations, preying on the widows, a financially, economically vulnerable population. As it is said in the book of Mark, devouring houses. They were, um, to give some background, cultural background, they would also, um, the widows would go in debt so much where their houses would be foreclosed. So there was a lot of cultural poverty, losing houses, homes, um, because they were in debt. So economically <laughs> um, burning, um, which was preying on the, uh, the vulnerable. And then Jesus condemns the system, but not enforces, not enforcers of system, of the system. So he wasn't directly attacking um, the Sadducees, the scribes, but he was saying he was really critiquing the system itself. Um, and then focusing on the injustice of the system as a whole. Those who are collaborating, those who are religious figures, those who are um, collaborating with the uh, Roman Empire. Um, that's what that's a, a strong theme throughout the book of Mark uh, with public protests, flipping tables, um, tricking them in their own questioning. These are nonviolent challenges to the empire's collaborators. And so I just wanted to raise this and kind of trying to change, or I won't say change, but give you another interpretation of both Esther and Mark through King and uh, nonviolence principle uh, when it's when nonviolence is seeking 
um, to gain a friend, understanding, to not attack the, um, the person, but to confront the evil and the hate that that person is also a victim of. Um, and that's why I kind of shared the Young Lords videos with you, because these are real people that did real things. They kept the real issue at hand. They did not violently um, seek, you know, vengeance, seek out their anger to express it. Um, they were finding creative ways. And occupying a space was a big thing. Um, even in the civil rights movement, sit-ins, counters, boycotts, um, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers kind of did it differently. They locked <laughs> the doors. Um, but... Other than that, though, they were occupying space, kept it um, the issue, the issue. They did not seek violence. So, yeah, let me stop sharing. But yeah, I wanted to present that to you guys to really kind of look at the book of Esther if you ever go back into it. It's a very controversial book uh, when it comes to sexual exploitation, um, when it comes to power structure, the continuance of violence. And Book of Esther is also a book that never mentions God. So I've read some books where people are like, what if God was in that? What if God was mentioned? What if a prayer was mentioned? Would that have changed the edict, the outcome? Um, would they chose love instead of hate and anger um, and violence? And then also the Book of Mark, um, the person who gave their all. But was there a system in place that forced her to do that, um, that contributed to her poverty, that preyed on her? Um, and was Jesus critiquing that? And like I said, many before I said, we've heard this sermon about giving, tithing, stewardship, completely different message. <laughs> um, but seeing how some of these scriptures, if we continue it, um, if someone is on minimum wage and we're pressuring them to do tithing, is that all they have? Or if they don't show up on Sunday, is it because they're trying to make ends meet? So we have to understand um, some of our actions, are they violent financially, economically for some? Um, but yeah, I wanted to present that, um, trying to give you guys a lens of what nonviolence um, through two different books, <laughs> two different scriptures, um, two different outcomes. Um, but what does nonviolence look like and what does violence look like in these scriptures? Thank you for that. That has given us a lot to think about in new perspective, for sure, on ways we can interpret those two scriptures. Um, does anyone have any questions? Go ahead and unmute yourself and or raise a hand. Or if you're not able to speak, you can comment in the um, chat. I'll be looking at that, too. What questions do you have? Or if you have a reflection to share as you're taking everything in and processing, feel free to share that too. Uh, we have a question here, Wesley Foundation. It's really just my question. <laughs> How was King so forgiven, forgiving? How was he so forgiving? Like he'd have people, you know, people were being bombed, people were being killed. He was being attacked. He was, and, you know, dogs were being thrown at him. Hoses were being sprayed on him. Like, how was he able to just forgive people that quickly? Because somebody did something like that to me. I don't want to talk to you ever. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like the attitude, the spirit that I welcome. But how was he so so forgiving? I say, you want to tackle that, Damien? <laughs> I spoke a lot. I spoke a lot. I, I think Angelo kind of set the stage for, for that question already uh, when he pointed out that nonviolence, it seeks to address the system and not the person, right? Um, but then to go a step further, um, he pointed out that, that people who are you know, the oppressive, those who are evil actors are also victims themselves because they're suffering 
at the hand of a system that was created, you know, that was created. And kind of so we have to look at the systemization that creates the environment for one side to live it out and one side to be impacted by it. And so both of them, as as nonviolent sees it, are, are are victims of the same system. Um, and so that's one way I think King was able to kind of grapple with that was, okay, we're wrestling with something that's much, much, much more grand here. This isn't just a person's actions individually. This is a an environment, a system, a culture, as it were, uh, that again, and so we have to look at the historicity of, of where King was living and how it graduated to that point in time. Um, it did not begin with the movement. It did, it did not begin with segregation. Uh, but you've got slavery, you've got black codes. You have, so there's been this emanation through our history um, that is really a systemization that created the environment. So I think that's one way. Uh, along with that, though, is the fact that King was deeply rooted in his faith. And so I think the only way that we can ever wrestle and grapple with the evil of injustice is to be rooted in our faith deeply and understanding that as we live it out, as we cry for justice, as we cry for change, as we as we wrestle and fight for change, that we never divorce ourselves from the faith and love that undergirds our faith. And that will help inform and empower how we forgive, how we navigate, and how we don't attack the person, but wrestle with the system and darkness that's creating the environment. And I'll add too, he, Dr. King was very observant. He was an observer of people's responses. Um, he wrote a lot during the uh, riot times um, in certain areas. He wrote just like how he observed it, people's responses. And then he kind of came to a conclusion over time studying Gandhi, studying other philosophers and all these others um, that were violence was just rampant at different times. He studied it and he came to the conclusion also like violence is not the way. Like, you know, no matter the, even if it's a response and defense, it was not the way. Um, and you can hear in his writings, he echoes it like the next generation could be filled with bitterness, you know, and tragic and hate carrying on that cycle of violence. So he was very observant, uh, critiquing, uh, pulling from different sources and understanding, hey, violence was not, is not the way. So how can I show love? How can I make this love radical? Uh, what does God say? Um, about this love and how does that um, really impact his view of forgiveness um, and like how Damon said like it, it focuses on the system and it's not easy he even writes it he's like it's not easy you see the faces of those who are committing it so the the reality is like how do you go beyond that how do you go beyond and see the the force behind them um, the evil behind them and how are they become also a puppet basically of that evil um and kind of creating this sense of empathy and love for them, um, which developed over time. I wouldn't say it happened overnight, but if you look through his writings and all these things, you can see how he's developed where he's learned from sources, um, influencers and all this stuff. And I want to add to I that. I wanted one. to say something, if you don't mind. Um, Jesus was the first example of giving uh, unconditional love and forgiveness on the cross when he's laying there and he's been tortured he said father forgive them for they know not what they do and yet we have some amazing examples in our own life that church i believe it was in either south carolina or north carolina uh, a young white man went into that black bible study and he ended up killing them all that church forgave him. That That's amazing too. And uh, I know of one where um, a man went into an Amish school and killed a bunch of the children and that Amish community forgave him. So there are examples, but they all went back to Jesus. You know, he's, he's the best example of what we are supposed to do in those instances. I'm glad you brought that up, and and I like how you know and even in, in watching Angelo's um, sharing for tonight. One of the things that you know when we look at 
what the cross represents for us, what the crucifixion represents for us. Um, when we look at the context and what, 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 what was happening at that time, Jesus was considered to be, you know, a disruptor to the system, the culture, you know, the, you know, the Roman Empire. And so, and, and so there were those who were suffering around him. I mean, well, who were, who were, you know, helping with, with his crucifixion, those who were, you know, beating him and, you know, and a part of it. And he's saying, hey, look, you know, forgive them because I recognize they're part of the Roman system. They're part of this environment. So they're, they're also victims. And so, you know, Father, forgive them because they're just living out what's been created for, for them to, you know, live in. And so I think that's where we see and what the cross teaches us, that, that there is a greater system at play we have to look beyond the person, you know, and that love shows up and recognizing that and also for us it's a lesson in nonviolence as well, is that you know that we have to be able, be willing to be a voice against the systems that oppress those who are suffering and even those who are inflicting the suffering. Uh, because again, we have we want freedom for everybody. We want justice. Um, you know, and when we look, look at scriptures, you know. Uh, the word righteousness in the in the Geneva Bible was originally justice, and so how do we live it out loud? How do we know? How do we make sure that we have a just environment uh, where we can be beloved together, uh, living out in love? You know, I have a question. I wonder, Pastor Damien and Angelo, if you could speak to this. So, if there are people who are with us this evening, or who will go back and watch the recording. And they've heard this, you know, interwoven foundation of um, challenging the principality and not the person. If there are people here who say, look, I've heard it, I, I understand it, but I'm not there yet. How, how do I even, where do I even begin to get to a point like that? I wonder, you know, if you could speak to that and what you might say to someone who says, you know, I've heard it, I get the concept, I get the idea, but I'm struggling to get there. What, what would you say to someone like that? I um I would begin by encouraging that person to be willing and okay with having their personal, emotional, social, and theological frameworks challenged. Um, because to actually embrace this space. For some of us, it may disrupt what we have come to know and come to believe and embrace as as whole truth. Um, there's actually, I want to say, um, um, Angela and I were have, have, have a conversation. I think this 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 pathway is much like grief um, at times because you end up having to go through go through this disconnection. With what you've always known, what has always had you comfortable. And so you end up having to work through some grief stages as you embrace a new paradigm and way of thinking and way of, pro and way of approaching um, our faith, theology, and even how we live it out. And so I think one, being okay with that process, but number two, being patient with yourself. Um, being patient with yourself and allowing yourself to you know to low, you know, to grow and learn and even experience God differently to recognize that the way that you see the world is not the way that everyone sees the world. To recognize that to be nonviolent, we have to be open to the experiences of other people. You know, again, knock at midnight, you know, the, you know, the Good Samaritan, all, all of these lessons show us and even nonviolence shows us that we have to be open to the, to the experience of someone who may not share our own. Um, and that is knowing in love. Uh, but also beyond that, is is recognizing uh, that as you are, are you okay with being being disrupted, uh, as you become you know again be patient with yourself in this process of learning you know and seeing the world differently, but also recognize that at the end of the day the goal is to live out our faith and being beloved, you know and and so and so as we do that we actually are growing in our faith you know we're growing as people and so being patient with that process and and you know, and lastly I'll say again you know. But don't, and, but don't be afraid, 
I mean, it, it may be a different road. It may be challenging. It may open your eyes just for things you have not seen before. Uh, it may create space for conversation you never had before. But that's what I love about nonviolence. You know, part of nonviolence in, you know, in the steps is information gathering. And so, you know, one of the ways that we can actually navigate the space is, is information gathering. Learn as much as you can. Uh, about experiences, about nonviolence, about you know, about your faith you know, um, tradition, you know, about the history of you know your experiences, you know, in your culture, in your city, in your church, what have you, and begin to grapple with that and wrestle with that, and see how you live it out loud. Um, it's, it's a process. Be patient, but yet it's powerful. Um, and once we do that, we can be beloved together. But again, um, it, it you know it will be again. I said this uh, our first week. No, we have to be okay with being disrupted so we can be disruptive. And I guess that for me, it's leaning more on the internal. So Dr. King talks a lot about internal violence, internal struggles on how to wrestle with this. Like I said, a lot of his writings were actually defense papers to those challenging, like that same question. <laughs> so it, it, it comes down to how he understands human worth um, dignity, um, and really challenging, how do we uplift the democracy, you know, when you look at just like the pursuit of happiness for all, all these type of things. So really tapping into where you sit, um, politically, where you sit, um, an understanding of how we operate in America. Um, but I would say my, I lean more on the internal struggle, um, when it comes to ask yourself, how do you, like, what is human worth to you outside of you? Um, do they, does everyone have the right to air, water, food, housing, you know, and then start there. But then he also even says, once you start asking those questions, you start asking, well, who owns the oil? You know, why do we pay for water when the world is two thirds water? You know, why are we still struggling with, um, to get clean water in these other countries when you have this amount of water? Um, so, you know, so you, you yourself go through that internal process and then, um, but also land on like, where is Jesus in all this? Where's God in all this? Where's, you know, what's your faith, um, say about human worth, dignity, and then like, how do you live that, that Imago day, you know, God's image, where, how do you see that in them? How do you see that in you and the interrelatedness and all that, you know, again, different walks of life could be hard. You know, you might have family members that are addicts, you know, um, it's hard to reconnect with them if they've been distant for a long time. So how do you walk with them? How do you start new? What's your, you know, why are you avoiding those? So those are like personal, but like, how do you apply that to a communal social, you know, environment when it comes to policies, when it comes to advocating, when it comes to all these things? And Dr. King was big on it. I think it, it built over time. Like if you go and even if you watch, well, they don't really show it in the movie Selma, but after his house was bombed, you know, one of the first things he really wanted to do was get a gun. He actually said that if you read um, Credit Scott King's book, um, she said like he wanted to actually go get a gun at that time. And she said no, because that would defeat the purpose. She saw, she said after that bombing, she saw the big picture that time. She really saw it all what was this worth doing? What? So she, for, she, you know, told him, no, that will defeat the purpose because people showed up at his house with weapons ready for revenge. And um, Martin Luther King was about to join that. So it's a process for him too. It was a process for him. You don't see it overnight. Um, but I think it's that internal, that internal struggle, violence. How do you see people? How do you recommit to nonviolence in your mind? Um, be mindful of that. Yeah. Thank you both for that. I think this, uh, the, the response and just the whole study itself has been very insightful and has given us quite a bit to think about and meditate on as we figure out how to apply this stuff to our lives and, and to stand on it as, as part of who we are. So thank you for that. Thank you for leading us for yet another week as we continue on in this study. Uh, looking at the time, I do see it's 8.09. I don't see that there are any more questions. There are some comments um, on various things in the chat. 
one about um, the church um, operating too much judgment and not enough love comment about um, us needing to love one another truly as Christ has loved us. Another comment about Christians being a voice against systems of oppression, actually speaking up against those systems um, and those who might be unwitting actors in the system that, that afflicts them to, it's a call to action. I think that's a great note to end on that it's a call to action that we, we know and when we know better, we do better. And so I wanna leave us with that point and just give another reminder of um, the trainings coming up in March and April, every Tuesday at seven, the nonviolent trainings. And so that information uh, will be emailed out. So be on the lookout for that so that you can join in that work. And uh, we will have one more study with Pastor Damien and Angelo next Tuesday will be our last study at 7 p.m. So plan to join us, invite a friend, and we will see you next week, Tuesday. Amen. Take care, everyone, and God bless you until we meet again. And thank you again to Pastor Damien and Angelo. Thank you both. Have a good night, everyone.